We will be continuing in Mark 1 this morning, verses 9 through 13. title of the sermon, as you can see, your sermon notes, is the way of God's faithful son. John has come to prepare the way of the Lord. He has been preparing the way. Today we will trace his path a little further But we will also find out some things about the one who walks on that way. He is the faithful Son of God. In these verses that we'll read in just a moment, we are introduced to the second voice in the first 13 verses of Mark's Gospel. The second voice who tells us something about Jesus of Nazareth. What we will read in these verses is heaven's own announcement of who Jesus is. John has proclaimed him, and now heaven as well. And what we will find is that Jesus is exactly who Mark says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this is what God himself has to say about him. But there's more here than simply heaven's testimony to who Jesus is. John has come to prepare the way for this one. And John's ministry is nearly complete Once we finish our section today, next Sunday, we will look at verse 14, and that is the arrest of John. His ministry is going to come to conclusion. He's come to prepare the way, and he is nearly complete in his work, and yet there are several, actually one more element here, John's preparation, the way of the Messiah that we must continue. Mark calls our attention here to Jesus' baptism. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It may appear that we have two different stories here. First, there's Jesus' baptism, and second, there's Jesus' temptation. Are these two stories? Should we have two sermons? And the answer to that is no. In reality, they belong together as one story. And there are several reasons for that. First of all, they're both part of John's work to prepare the way for the Lord who comes. Secondly, they both occur in the wilderness. Verse 9 says, in those days. In what days? In the days when John was baptizing in the wilderness. Then in verse 12, the temptation occurs in the wilderness. And so both of these occur in the wilderness. Exactly where Jesus' ministry, the Old Testament said, would begin. Third, these belong together because Mark says that the baptism was immediately, verse 12, followed by the temptation. Mark wants us to see that these are two steps on the path that come right after the other. They belong together. Jesus went straight from the Jordan to his temptation. Fourthly, the spirit who comes upon Jesus at his baptism is the spirit who propels him into the wilderness. So they belong together. 
The temptation then is actually, as it were, the result of his baptism and receiving his spirit, receiving the spirit. So these two accounts belong together. And Matthew and Luke both record both of these events. But their emphases in those Gospels are much different than Mark. In fact, this section in Mark that we have read has been quite puzzling to me to put together this week. Because it doesn't seem to fit together. The emphases that Mark makes don't seem to belong to the same story. And they don't seem to come following on the heels of what John has been doing. What we find here is surprising. The mighty one who is coming that John has foretold seems to be little more than a mere disciple of John who is baptized by him. John, who was not even worthy to remove the shoe of the one who was coming, now we find him baptizing him as though he were joining John's community. John has pointed the people to the coming of the mighty one and they're all up on tiptoe in anticipation. But when Jesus, the mighty one, actually appears, he does little more than slip into the crowd of those who, who are waiting to be baptized. And then he slips away into the desert. Where is the mighty one? No one actually really sees him. Mark has left us enough clues here to understand that he doesn't want us to think about these events as grand and public. Matthew and Luke put the spotlight on the fact that all that happened here, everyone saw it. Not so in Mark. In fact, Mark wants us to see that these events happened in secret and behind a veil. Notice Jesus' baptism, you'll see that. Unlike Matthew and Luke, there's no conversation here between Jesus and John. In fact, the words to describe Jesus' baptism in verse 9, that he comes and is baptized by John in the Jordan, are exactly the same words used of the baptism that John carries out on everyone else who comes from Judea in verse 5, who come and are baptized by John in the Jordan. There's nothing significant about what's going on here, it seems. Jesus is just like any other person. He's simply one of the crowd. Does John even know who he's baptizing? Mark doesn't seem to think that John does. And the spectacular events that surround his baptism, the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending as a dove and the, the voice from heaven, who hears this? Look at verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. Jesus saw the Spirit descending, and a voice came from heaven, and this is the voice that Jesus heard. And then he's driven out into the wilderness, and there's no one else out there except the wild beasts. Mark tells us that Jesus hears and sees these things, but he doesn't tell us that anyone else saw or heard, and he doesn't tell us that it seemed to make any difference to anyone in that day. No one saw, and it didn't seem to make any difference to those. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and it's only then when he returns from the wilderness, verse 14, that Jesus begins publicly proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Why are these events here then? If these events weren't, first of all, for the people at the Jordan to see, why are they here? For whose benefit? And the only answer we can come to is that they're here for our benefit. Mark records them for us to see. And he has made a point here of saying to us 
You're the only ones who get to know this from the beginning. You're the ones who are let into the secret that no one else seems to know at this point in the story. And we must remember that as we go forward in Mark's gospel, all the way through. We get to know a lot of things that most of the people around Jesus do not. What is the purpose for that? What does Mark have to say to us through these events? We'll examine them carefully to determine what's going on here. And then once we've examined them, we'll come back at the end and find four things that are significant for us as a result of what Mark says to us here about Jesus who comes from Nazareth. What Mark tells us here about Jesus' baptism, let's look at that first, is very brief. And every phrase is significant. Look with me at verse 9. In those days. What days? These are the days when John is calling for repentance. The days of John's baptism when the Jews are streaming out of Jerusalem and Judea to the wilderness to be baptized. These are the days when a new community in the wilderness is forming. These are the days when John is pointing these people to look for the one who's coming after him. These are the days when they're being told to expect the coming of the mighty one. These are the days when they're told to expect the one who is coming to bring them the spirit. He will baptize with the spirit. And in those days, Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Jesus has apparently grown up in Galilee. We don't know that from Mark's gospel, but Matthew and Luke and John tell us that. Galilee is the land of the Gentiles. It's not part of Judea. Israelites live there, yes, but they're mixed in with other people groups. Jesus has grown up in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee, and the way that Mark paints the picture here, Jesus is the only one to be baptized who's not from Judea and Jerusalem. All Judea and Jerusalem are being baptized, and Jesus makes quite a trek from Nazareth of Galilee down to Judea, down to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. And when he does... He undergoes exactly the same baptism that all of those from Judea and Jerusalem undergo. We notice that comparing verse 5 and verse 9. What Jesus undergoes is exactly what John is administering to all those who are coming out of Judea and Jerusalem. And all of this then is striking. Because John has foretold the coming of the mighty one. And here verse 9, in those days Jesus comes. Here comes the mighty one. Coming from Nazareth of Galilee... He arrives on the scene, but he doesn't stand up and announce himself. Instead, he simply slips into the long line of those waiting to be baptized. What is he doing? He is identifying himself with these people. He's joining the crowd. He's becoming one of the baptized. He has journeyed from Galilee to be here with them in the wilderness. He takes his place alongside of them with them, among them, beside them. And it's surprising to us to see the Son of God submitting himself to the same baptism that sinners submit themselves to. What did he have to repent of? Well, no sin, of course. We must remember that repentance is both a turning from sin and a turning to God. Jesus is placing himself here amongst those who have turned their faces to the Lord in expectation. He is identifying with God's people. 
He is taking his place in their midst. He is one of them. One day he will rise to proclaim the kingdom. But he will rise to proclaim it from among them. But what we find out pretty quickly is that while Jesus identifies with these people, while he undergoes the same baptism that they do, his baptism isn't exactly like the rest of the people. When he comes up out of the water, the heavens are ripped open and they're torn open for two reasons, Mark tells us. First, they're torn open to make clear that the Spirit who descends has come from heaven. And secondly, they are torn open to make clear that the voice that is heard is heaven's, God's own voice. And both of these things, the descent of the Spirit and God's voice from heaven, are highly significant for us to understand what is going on here. Here's Jesus. He has identified with the people. And then the heavens are torn open. John has just told the people in verse 8 that his baptism could not convey to them the Holy Spirit. I can baptize you, but you won't receive the Spirit from me. Jesus comes to be baptized. John baptizes him, and he receives the Spirit. Where does the Spirit come from? Not from John, and not from John's baptism. It comes from the heavens that were torn open. John had said the coming one would baptize in the Spirit. Baptism is how he would bestow the Spirit upon the people. And here Jesus is baptized. And he receives the Spirit. And there's actually a pretty nice balance in the original language. It's not to be technical. But you can just see this in your English Bible. Verse 10. Immediately when Jesus is coming up, the Spirit is coming down. So it is in his baptism that he is receiving the Spirit. And that makes the connection here between baptism and Jesus receiving of the Spirit. The one that we undergo is a picture of the other. Water baptism pictures an invisible spirit baptism. And we have looked at that before in the place of baptism in the local church. But that's not actually the main point that Mark is making here. The main point Mark is making in this coming up and the Spirit coming down is that Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism, a baptism by John, when no one else at their baptism by John did. John says he can't give the Spirit, but Jesus receives him. Why? What made Jesus so special? Why did he receive the Spirit when no one else did? There's something else unique about Jesus' baptism. We'll come back and answer that question in a minute. But there's something else unique about Jesus' baptism. Yes, he identifies with the people, but his baptism is not like the people. He receives the Spirit. And secondly, there is a voice from heaven. It cries out as he comes up out of the water, You are my Son. With you, I am well pleased. There's something very significant going on here, and that's obvious to us. Heaven being torn open and a voice from heaven, it would be very significant. But if we turn to four Old Testament passages and put them together, we will find out what's actually going on here, okay? There's three in Isaiah, and there's one in Psalms. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61. 
to begin with. Isaiah chapter 61. We'll note a few things in each one of these passages and then come back at the end and put them all together to understand what is going on here. Jesus has just received the Spirit. And now listen to Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The word anointed is where we get the word Christ or Messiah. What is a Christ? What is a Messiah? Someone who has been anointed by the Spirit. So this is the Messiah speaking. This is the Christ speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why did he get the Spirit? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Mark has called Jesus the Messiah. And now heaven has sent the the Spirit upon this man, anointing him as the Messiah. And the Spirit in Mark 1, we didn't notice this, but we'll see this next week in verse 14. The Spirit has come upon him, and the result is in verse 14, Jesus does what Isaiah 61 says. He begins proclaiming the good news. So the Spirit comes upon him to prepare him for that ministry of proclaiming the good news. But look at Isaiah chapter 11 as well. Flip back about 50 chapters to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of Israel's first spirit-anointed king, David. Shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Verse 3 His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This one on whom the Spirit rests shall judge, not by what I see. He will decide disputes, not by what ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. To preach the good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. To strike the earth that he may judge in righteousness. Here the Messiah who comes is not just coming to proclaim the good news. The Messiah, the Spirit anointed one is coming to reign as a king. He will judge. He will come with a rod to strike. And Psalm 2. Let's look at Psalm 2. We've examined this psalm before. Mark, in his first verse, called Jesus the Christ and the Son of God. And we've noted... Psalm 2 is the only place in the Old Testament where Christ and Son of God are applied to the same person. 
So Mark wants us to think of Jesus as the one that Psalm 2 is speaking about. He is, verse 2, the Lord's anointed. He is, verse 7, the Father's Son. And in this psalm, God has made a decree that his king will reign over the rebellious nations. He laughs at their rebellion because his king is already set up to smash them in their rebellion. So, who is the king? Psalm 2 verse 7. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you, O king, are my son. Who is the king? Who will strike the nations? He's the one on whom the spirit of the Lord rests, Isaiah 11. He's the one who is God's son, Psalm 2. So when Mark records the voice that said to Jesus in Mark 1, You are my son. Did Jesus need God to tell him, Oh, remember, you are my son now. Keep that in mind. As though Jesus had forgotten. No, that was written for us. The father said, you are my son, so that we would think about Psalm 2. You are my son. This is the son whom God intends to enthrone as king over all of the nations. The son who was baptized. The son who received the spirit. This is the son who God intends will reign over all the nations with a rod of iron. You are my son, he says. In verse 9, this son, who has, according to Isaiah 11, the spirit, this son also has, in Psalm 2, a rod. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what's the picture? You are my son, you who have been anointed by the spirit. The picture is... That there will come a spirit-anointed king, God's own son, who will reign over the nations with a rod of iron. He will possess great authority, the authority of God himself. That's this one who is baptized. You are my son. And so, let's turn back to Mark chapter 1. We'll come back to Isaiah in just a minute, Isaiah 42. But let's turn back to Mark 1. I just want you to notice one thing here. What we are witnessing at Jesus' baptism is actually a secret ceremony amongst the members of the Trinity because they're all here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we get to watch. What's going on? Jesus has identified himself with the crowds. He has slipped in among them. But the Father and the Spirit tear the heavens open. The Spirit descends upon him. The Father says, you are my son. And we learn that he's not just like any of the others who have come to be baptized. On one level, Mark is showing us that what he has told us about Jesus in verse 1, the Christ and the Son of God, he's showing us, hey, look. Heaven said the same thing that I said. I said he was Christ and Son of God. And the Father sent the Spirit, so he's the Christ. And the Father said he's my Son, so he's the Son. So I'm right. See, heaven proves it. That's one thing that Mark is saying to us. 
But why is it important that he is the Christ and the Son of God? When Mark calls Jesus the Christ and the Son of God, what is he saying? He's saying to us that Jesus is the one who comes with the Spirit upon him to reign over the nations as God's King. So why is it that from the crowd that day that heaven opened and this man from Galilee was baptized, this man received the Spirit, this man was called the Son of God. Why this man? Why Jesus of Nazareth? And there's one more passage we need to look at, and that's Isaiah 42. Why is it this man? Jesus has identified himself with the whole crowd. And out of that whole crowd, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends. When Jesus is baptized, the Father says, you are my son. Why? And the answer is in Isaiah 42. Verse 1, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We're talking about the same person. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Instead, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. How far will this justice extend? It will extend even to the coastlands, which is probably a word that refers to the distant islands of the sea. He will reign over the whole earth in righteousness, this one in whom is the Spirit of God. And the question is, why did God put his Spirit upon this man? Listen to Mark 1. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. And that's what Isaiah 42 says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Here's the picture of a spirit-anointed king who goes forth to reign over the nations, to bring forth justice. Who is the king? In Isaiah 41, 42, he's not the son, like Psalm 2. He is the one in whom God's soul delights. He is the one with whom I am well pleased. And so when the voice from heaven calls Jesus the one with whom I am well pleased, there's an Old Testament passage that tells us who that is. It's the one in whom is the Spirit. It's the one who will come to bring forth justice even to the coastlands. The person in Isaiah 42 then is Jesus of Nazareth. But here's the question we, we have to answer. What does God mean when he says, I am well pleased with him? Had Jesus done something especially righteous? God said, oh, I'm so pleased with what you did. Was God just saying, you know, this is the first time that you've reached adulthood, manhood, and you're being baptized. You've been a really well-behaved boy growing up. Is that what God's saying? Look at Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
God isn't saying anything about Jesus' behavior when he says, with you I am well pleased. Instead, he's saying something to us about Jesus' position. You are the one I have chosen to be the king. It is my delight to bestow that title upon you. I have chosen you out of the crowd of the baptized. So what's going on in Mark chapter 1? The father at the baptism is choosing the son to be the king of all the nations and bestowing upon him the spirit to empower him to accomplish that mission. And here then God is naming his king. You are my son. I bestow upon you the spirit. You are my chosen one in whom I delight. No one else at this point knew that Jesus was the chosen one. If you read John's gospel, John the Baptist knew. And he proclaims it to the crowd, but not in Mark. In Mark, this is all very secretive, it seems. It's a ceremony that that is transacted between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But we have a window into this. We have been invited into the secret. The Spirit then has come upon Jesus to empower him as King of the nations. But what happens next is even more astonishing, I think. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. This is the passage that just in my estimation doesn't even go together. But it's in trying to figure out how it goes together that we actually understand what Mark is trying to say to us. The Spirit has come upon Jesus to empower him as king of the nations. But now, having received the Spirit, verse 12, rather than lead Jesus to proclaim himself the anointed of God, rather than lead Jesus to wield his rod of iron upon the nations, rather than lead Jesus to begin preaching the gospel of the kingdom, The Spirit compels Jesus to go into the wilderness. What is going on? How do these fit together? I want you to notice several things about the temptation of Jesus. First, the emphasis in Mark is not really on Jesus' temptation. Think about Matthew, what Matthew has to say. I think there's 13 verses in Matthew. Here there's two. And actually the main ideas are not Jesus' temptation... The two main statements Mark makes here about this time for Jesus is that, number one, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and number two, that he was with the the wild animals. And while he was in the wilderness, he happened to be tempted by Satan, and while he was with the wild beasts, the angels were ministering to him. And the statement about his temptation then is actually not the main statement. But it does say that he was tempted by Satan, And yet it's the Spirit who's brought him here. And so Satan might be the one who tempts him, yes. The actual point of temptation. But it's the Spirit of God who has brought him into this period of testing. It's God himself, through Satan's work, who is the one who is testing his son. What's the point of this? The wild animals, the angels. Forty days in the wilderness. What's happening here sounds remarkably familiar, actually, if you've read your Bible. Forty days in the wilderness, being tempted by God. And if you would, take the time with me to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're almost finished. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want to read you verses 1 through 3.
The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Keep my covenant, God says, so that you may live and multiply and go in, go in and possess the land. They're not in the land yet. Keep the covenant so that you can go in and possess the land. Verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, there is no question that the temptation of Jesus and Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 3 go together because Matthew says that that's what was happening. Go read Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't quote this passage, but Matthew does, and so apparently it belongs with Jesus' temptation. What's going on here? Israel's situation in the wilderness is exactly like Jesus' situation in the wilderness. There are a number of parallels. 40 days versus 40 years. Tested by God in both. Both are in the wilderness. Israel has not yet gone in. They are still in the wilderness. There's several other parallels. Mark says that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. That's a very strong word. It means to expel. The Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. It's where Israel was before God brought them into the land. And Mark doesn't say it, but Matthew and Luke both tell us that this testing had to do with food, with hungering and fasting, and so also here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The manna was quite a time of testing for Israel. Jesus is exactly where Israel was before she entered into the land. So keep that in mind and go back to Mark. What about the animals and the angels? What are we supposed to make of that? He was with the wild beasts. What's the point of telling us about animals and angels now? There's actually very rich significance here. And to, think, to see it, we have to think about, think back in time to when another man dwelt in the presence of the animals. The animals then were docile, the man was their head, and that was paradise. It was a place of plants and fruit trees and richness and beauty. One man with the animals, but Jesus here isn't in paradise. He's in the wilderness. And the animals here are not docile, they are wild animals. Things are different now. And the difference is because of human sin. Jesus is living under the effects of the fall here. He's living in a sin-cursed world that isn't blooming like the Garden of Eden. It's a wilderness. It's a desert because of human sin. But unlike Adam, who was driven out of God's presence and kept out by an angel, here the angels are ministering to Christ. He's the object of God's special care in this sin-cursed world. He has sent the angels to minister to Christ in this barren wasteland amongst the wild beasts. And the question we've got to ask is, why? 
why did the angels come and minister to him? What man enjoys the protection of God's angels in the midst of wild animals? And the answer is found in Psalm 91. And this will be the last passage we'll turn to this morning. What man enjoys the protection of God's angels in the midst of wild animals? It's Psalm 91. We won't read the whole psalm. You're probably familiar with a lot of it. Let's read verses 9 through 13. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, because you have done that, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And we know that Psalm 91 goes with Jesus' temptation. Go read Matthew's Gospel. So what is Mark saying to us here by including the wild animals and the angels? I just want you to notice several things in this psalm. First, whoever this psalm is talking about, it's talking about someone who, look at verse 10, someone who is kept safe from evil. What evil? In Psalm 91, we find things like pestilence, Arrows that fly, that would be invading armies. Destruction. Wild beasts. If you will go back and read the concluding chapters of Deuteronomy, you will find that every one of those is part of God's curse that he promised would fall upon Israel if she was not faithful to God's covenant. If she transgressed the covenant, these curses would come upon her. And that's exactly what the person in Psalm 91 has to fear. Pestilence and invading armies and destruction and even wild beasts who invade the land. It's all part of God's curse on Israel's sin. If Israel is unfaithful to the Lord, he will send these things upon her. Invading armies and pestilence and destruction. But the psalm declares how safe the one is who takes refuge in the Lord on that day. The armies may come and overrun Israel, who is destined for God's curse, but it won't come near you. The pestilence may invade because God has cast a curse upon Israel for her unfaithfulness, but it won't come near your dwelling. You who have made the Lord your refuge. Why? Why will evil not befall this one in Psalm 91? The answer is in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. That's why God delivers this one from evil. Because he has held fast to the Lord. He has been faithful to the Lord. While Israel has been unfaithful and received God's curse, this one has been faithful to the Lord. So it will not come near him. How will God act to deliver this one? When evil is all around from God's curse, how will God act to keep this one safe? And the answer is, verse 11, he'll send his angels to stand around your dwelling 
to guard you and to carry you. You will overcome the wild beasts and the angels will minister to you. Because you have held fast to me in love. Now who is Psalm 91 talking about? Jesus. He's the one who has stood steadfast and faithful to God. He's the one whom God sent his angels to care for him in the midst of the wild beasts. So that like Daniel in the lion's den, they did not come near him. The spirit casts him out into the wilderness to be tested. Israel too was tested in the wilderness. And Moses says before he dies that they, have all, they already have deserted the Lord. They've already been unfaithful. Is it any wonder then that invading armies and pestilence followed Israel so much of their existence when they were so unfaithful? Instead of a thousand falling at her side and ten thousand on her right hands and the plague not coming near to Israel, instead the story we read in the Old Testament is that ten thousands of Israelites actually did fall. And the threats of famine and pestilence were very real all through the Old Testament. But not for Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus had the angels to guard him. He was with the wild beasts. He was tempted by Satan. But he enjoyed the presence and protection of the angels. Why? Because God's son was faithful. Where Israel and all of us are not. And this tells us something very significant. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus is going to encounter far more than wild beasts in this gospel. There will be much opposition and it will start in the very second of the chapters. It will result finally in his crucifixion. But here we see a small window into the end of the way of the Lord. It begins in the wilderness. The way of the Lord begins in the wilderness. Where does it end? Jesus has been cast out, Mark tells us, into the wilderness by the Spirit. In fact, he's been cast out into this world where he also undergoes the effects of the fall. He's surrounded by sin and evil, but it will not come near him. He will walk through this world guarded by the angels. He will triumph over it all. Why? Because he is the son in whom the father is pleased. He has entered into covenant with God. And he has been faithful. God has chosen him. He can never fail. With the spirit. With the angels. With the father. This newly chosen king of all the nations. Shows in the wilderness. That his conquest is certain. He conquers Satan. The ruler of the spiritual world. He conquers the beasts. And the king of the jungle is one of the beasts. He has shown his conquest over everything that has gone wrong because of sin. The fallen evil world. The fallen natural world. He is the master of it all. And with the spirit and with the angels, he is unstoppable. His reign will come. And so what must our response be? Four things. First, you must understand that the way of the Lord is with the wild beasts, but it is safe. 
It involves being tempted by Satan. It involves being beset by sin. Following this path is not easy. It is not safe to be a Christian. It is a dangerous journey in this world. And Jesus calls us in the book of Mark to follow him. To walk the path that he walks. All the way to death. To lay down our lives. To give up ourselves. To take up our crosses. And to follow him. The journey will cost you everything, he says. But the dangers will not touch you. The arrow that flies by day. The terrors that stalk through the night. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on, your, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You, Psalm 91 says, you shall tread upon the lion and the serpent. And Paul tells us in Romans 16.20, God will soon crush under your feet Satan, the great serpent. The path of the Lord is with the wild beasts. But they will not touch you. God will see you safely through. Second, you must see here why we are safe to follow Jesus. Why is it this way? Psalm 91 says, It will not come near you because you have been faithful. So have you been faithful? Here's why it's safe to follow Jesus. Because he's faithful. He is the chosen one. He is the one in whom is all of the Father's delight. If you are following him, that's Mark's way of saying if you are in him or if you belong to him. If you are following him, then you are safe. Safe because of Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness. Safe because of this very incident right here. In which he is faithful to God in the midst of temptation by Satan. You are safe because of his faithfulness in the wilderness. You are safe because the Father has chosen him to be the king of all the world and to conquer all the nations. He is the installed king over the nations, over the beasts, over the terrors, over the pestilence, over the devil himself. Jesus has won the battle and all who are his are safe. And with him, all we who have received the Spirit will reign with him in life by that one man, Jesus Christ. Third, you must understand that our salvation rests upon God's sovereign choice of Jesus of Nazareth to be the king of the nations. God chose him. God delighted in him. God gave him the Spirit. God sent the angels to care for him in the wilderness. And God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You are in this one whom God has chosen. That was his great grace. It's not hard to see why God chose Jesus, is it? It's a little more baffling to figure out why he chose us. But that is our salvation that God has chosen his son and that God has chosen you to be in him to follow him so follow him 
through the wilderness, through the cross, through self-denial, through his resurrection, and up into glory. And fourth, you must take refuge under the shade of this king. You remember Psalm 91 verse 9? Jesus, whom the psalm is speaking of, called God his refuge. Jesus took refuge in God. God, the great king over all things. Jesus trusted in God to deliver him. He has made the Lord his refuge. And that God has chosen Christ and installed him as king. He has named his king. You are my son. So what must you do? Be wise therefore, O kings of the earth. Be discerning, O rulers of the people. Psalm 2 verses 9 through 12. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In the one who took refuge in God. The one chosen of God. The one guarded by the angels of God. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If God has installed this great king. And if he will come to take vengeance on the nations. And to strike them with his rod of iron. Then we must run to him. We must kiss the sun. We must take refuge in the sun. What does that look like? In Mark's gospel, it looks like repenting. It looks like confessing your sins. It looks like being baptized. It looks like joining yourself to his people. It looks like following him through this dangerous world and up into Zion, where he sits as king today. It means believing the good news that he is God's chosen king. And bowing before him. And following him. Lord God, thank you for installing your son as king at the resurrection. But for giving us a little preview of that here. When you name him ahead of time. The king who shall rise up to rule over the nations. Thank you for his faithfulness to you in the wilderness. And thank you for including us in him. In him we have all things. He is the one who has triumphed over even hunger in the desert. And he has turned around to feed us of himself. And we find in him all that our souls need. Help us to follow him. To bow before him. To live under his righteous and glorious reign. And to expect that because of him, because of his faithfulness, you will guard us. You will preserve us. You will bring us safely through for our heavenly inheritance. And Lord, we see that now as we partake of this supper. And we pray that you would grant us the eyes of faith to embrace Jesus Christ again in this moment. And we ask in his name.